Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Passion drive and patience what brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive ebay motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers roof racks exhaust kits led headlights and more whether you're into speed power or style ebay motors has got you covered with over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die you'll always find exactly what you're looking for and with ebay guaranteed fit your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, now up to, to bat, Brett Boone. We're talking about all these, these stories and remembering them verbatim. And that's what we do as kids. We remember stuff. I, I mean, it's so cool hearing those stories. Never met uh, Harry Carey. Obviously, listen to him. Uh, he's a legend. He's everywhere. You can you can listen to him anytime you want. Just get on the internet. But Vince Scully, uh, talked to a decent amount of times when I'd go to Dodger Stadium. And and you're right. He was such a storyteller. He did it by himself. And what I remember when you're playing uh, as hitters, a lot of the time when we make an out, we go right into the right into usually off the dugout on the visiting, you know, on, on a road trip, usually the clubhouse is right off the dugout. A lot of times right after an out, we'll, we'll whip right up into the clubhouse because the, usually the, back in those, back in there, you know, that was the nineties for me, nineties, early two thousands, our video guys sitting there all set up. What do you want to see? I, I need to see that last pitch, but sometimes at Dodger stadium, I'd come in and I'd come, you know, to see that at bat, I just went there and, and Vin's still talking about a story about me when I was 12. And I'm going, Vin, no, no, that's wrong. You know, I'm sitting there, but he had my attention. And you're right. He was such a storyteller. Uh, he was amazing. And it seemed like he could go on for days at a time and just run one story into the next. And that's a lot of preparation. You know, doing this for as long as you've done it, the preparation. You know, I was a baseball player my whole life, and all of a sudden, you know, I started off doing this podcast. And wow, at the beginning, I kind of didn't know what you know. I was kind of a fish out of water. It's been a it's been a learning process, believe me. But I really appreciate 
your side of the mic, what you've done for so many years and the preparation that goes into your work, uh, that as a player, when I was just there to give you a soundbite here and there or do an interview, I didn't have that appreciation. I don't know that players do because they just doesn't don't know what's going on. You talk about those rides to the ballpark on a daily basis uh, and thinking, what am I going to come up with today? Well, all right. I got your brain starts going. You go, all right. I'm, you talk about, we'll go down and talk to Crawford, talk to him about that hamstring, how it's doing, because I'm going to need some, there's going to be some dead time up there in the booth, especially if it's not a good game. And I've got all these stories, which, which is uh, remarkable. They come across so natural when we're, we, the fan are listening to you, but you don't think about, Wow, this all started on his on his car ride to the ballpark today. Those are really cool things that I think fans don't get to hear every day. Well, I think the uh, uh, and for me, it's mainly that it keeps it fresh. People say, "How do you, how do you, you, you still enjoy the game?" I mean, after all these years, and and yes, because of that, because it's always new every day. And as you know, you you know, like anybody who's ever played the game uh, better than anybody. Uh, you can be red hot. You're seeing the ball. You're having success. You're hitting home runs, two hits tonight, three hits the next night. And, you know, for a week and a half, whatever, how are, you, you want that role to just keep going as long as possible. And then the whole narrative changes. All of a sudden you, you have an 0 for 4, you, you strike out three times. And, and now you just can't buy a hit day after day. It's, it's a confounding thing. And when you're the player, and I've talked to so many guys about this uh, over the years, uh, you go into a slump and all of a sudden you're, you're one for 20 or you know, 0 for 16 or whatever. And those things happen even to the best players. Um, the players have all told me, you're not thinking at that point, well, this is just, that's the way the game is. And I'll come out of it and then I'll, I'll get hot again. Most guys, when they're they're looking for answers, and they're looking, they're working extra time with the hitting instructors. They're looking at videos. Uh, what am I doing differently? What? Where did I lose my way and whatnot? The one thing that I thought is so cool now: the Giants have Mike Yastrzemski playing for them. And a long time ago, I used to do Red Sox games, 1980, 81, 82. I was in Boston, near the end of the career of Carl Yastrzemski, and. And I think that I may be the only guy, the only broadcaster, who did the everyday games for the grandfather and then did the everyday games yeah. for the grandson. I was thinking, and when I was thinking about that, I was thinking of the Boons. I was thinking of you guys. And I, well, but I think you guys were in, in different franchises and whatnot. And there certainly was not a guy who did the everyday games for your grandfather, Ray Boone, and right. then did your games every day. I don't think Dave Niehaus ever did that or, or Skip Gary <laughs> or, or whatever. So uh, so I was real excited when Mike Yastrzemski came to the Giants because of the connection with his grandfather. And uh, and I think on the, one of the stories that I never forget about Carl Yastrzemski being at Fenway Park and he's on a roll. He's in one of those tears, you know, he's like for 10 days, you can't get him out. And it was after a Saturday afternoon game at Fenway. Everybody's gone. We're just wrapping up our post-game show on the radio. And they bring out the batting cage. And I'm thinking, this is, I guess they're 
getting ready for tomorrow's game and they're bringing it out already. They don't want to have to do it tomorrow. I didn't, I didn't know what they were doing. And all of a sudden, some people come out and Carl Yastrzemski comes out and he starts taking batting practice again. Now, he just played the game. He just hit a home run and a double and had three hits. And now he's taking batting practice. So the next day before the game, I go down to, to the batting cage and ask him about that. And he said, well, when you've got that feel going, you, you want that muscle memory, you want to keep it as long as possible. So I feel like if I can take some more swings while I'm in that zone, maybe that helps with the muscle memory to me to keep repeating all of the things that I seem to be doing so perfectly. And, and I thought, now that is dedication. And it's also sort of a scientific approach to the whole thing, how to maximize a hot streak. Because a lot of guys, when they're hot, they don't even want to talk about it. I don't know how you were, but they didn't want yeah. to talk about it. You know, this is, I'm seeing the ball this way and I'm, I'm doing that. And you know, they don't want even to think about it because they're just in that zone. Just let it happen, which is probably good advice for any hitter. But, but Yaz did something a little bit differently in that regard. And, and that, that's part of his legacy that I'll never forget. Well, I think, you know, that's interesting you say that because certain players took that approach. You know, I never played with Manny Ramirez, but I heard he was that way. Uh, Tony Gwynn, def- I played with Tony for one year in San Diego, definitely that way. Didn't matter uh, how he was going. He was hitting. When I got to the ballpark, he was already up in the cage doing his, his early work off the tee. Um, and it, you talk about, yes, he's in a hot streak. He's hitting after the game. Wow. There were guys that was that was their approach. That was their mental approach to it. And then there were other guys I played with where if you're hot, like you said, stay away from me. Let's not talk about it. For me personally, if I'm in the zone, John, I had a routine I went through every night before the game. It's like especially my Seattle years. There was a time, you know, the game starts at 705 at at, at 6.52 was my time. I had five minutes, and and Edgar would be in there, and Mike Cameron, and Ichiro was at 6.48. But we had our time where we had five minutes just to get loose, like going to hit a couple range balls, not to work on your game, just to get loose before that first at bat. And I'll tell you, sometimes I'd be in there. If I was rolling, I might take three swings and go, I got it. I don't want to mess with what I got right now. I don't want to take too many swings and and work my way out of this streak. Uh, But some guys did. And and it's just what makes baseball and hitting, first of all, such a puzzle so hard. Uh, But it's it's amazing. Some of the great players, how they approached it uh, from the even if you're hot, I'm going to hit all day long where I, I, I would retreat and say, no, I don't want to mess up what I got. So interesting, interesting yeah, that, yeah. that you said that. When you talk about uh, great players it, it, and, the, and the Mariners it brought to mind, and I, I think that I, I don't know that you were there yet in Seattle. Maybe you can, can help me out with this. Uh, because What years? Uh, it, it was sometime in the – I'd say the the mid ninety, maybe ninety five, ninety six, somewhere. Yeah, ninety five when they had their when they beat the Yankees. I, I was there. I came up as a rookie in nineteen ninety two. I got traded to the Cincinnati Reds. So that time where it was uh, when they were in the Kingdom and then changed it to the new ballpark, they beat the Yankees in that kind of historic moment where Griffey scores. No, I was I was out of town for that. So go okay. ahead. I came back in two thousand one. 
Well, there was a game, you know, sometimes there are games that are just sort of unforgettable games, like things happen that you'll never forget. And A-Rod was a young guy. He was with the Mariners. Uh, uh, Griffey, you know, junior, was already blossoming into a big star and, and beloved, even in Baltimore. They loved Ken Griffey, Jr., uh, Jay Buhner, Edgar Martinez. I mean, it was yeah. a fun team to watch. They, they, had, they had a lot of studs, you know, Randy Johnson pitching every uh, fifth day, sometimes even a little more often. Uh, and yet they still had some flaws. They, they didn't have a whole lot of pitching besides the big unit in some of those years. But there was a game where A-Rod hit a grand slam. And uh, then in the same inning, uh, somebody with the Orioles hit a grand slam. And now a couple of innings later, the, the, the Mariners hit another grand slam. It's <laughs> been three grand slams or, or whatever it was. And so, and it's, it's a little bit of a sloppy game like these, these wild ones can be sometimes. And we go to the bottom of the ninth inning. It's 13 to 10 Seattle. And it was a game where you know, the Orioles were hitting a grand slam. They had a big lead. They blew the lead and A-Rod, it's a grand slam. Now the Mariners, you know, it's one of those kind of games. And you thought, well, maybe whoever bats last is going to win this game. But now it's kind of in Baltimore. The, it's kind of a, a, a feeling of despair, like they've they've blown this game, and they get something going in the bottom of the ninth inning, and they end up with the bases loaded, two down, and they're still behind thirteen to ten. And Chris Hoyles, you remember Chris Hoyles? I do, the catcher. Yeah, and uh, and he was a good hitter, and uh, Hoyles. And my memory is it, it got to uh, at least two strikes. I don't remember three and two or two, whatever it was, and a long at bat. And then, boom, grand slam. Team down by three, bottom of the ninth, two down, two strikes, and he hits a grand slam, and they win by one. Now, that's only happened, I don't know, a handful of times in the history of the game. You know, every time I see Gary DeSarcina, uh, who's been a third base coach in the big leagues for a while now. Uh, it, it, I, it, he was either in the game or maybe he's the one who did that where, where the angels were down by three in the bottom of the ninth and he had a grand slam. So it hasn't happened very, very often, but that's a game I'll never forget because it's, it's a the kind of a thing you only probably ever see the one time in, in your lifetime. So, uh, uh, and those kind of things kind of happened to, to those Mariners at that time. And maybe while you were there as well, they had great players and great talent great hitters, but sometimes not all that much pitching. So, uh, and, and Camden Yards was a place that you would get exploited if, if your pitching wasn't that good. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Yeah, you mentioned Junior, and they loved him in Baltimore. He kind of, he kind of, he was already on the big stage. He'd already arrived, but I think that home run derby at Camden Yards when he hit the, you know, when he hit the building and uh, had his hat on backwards, there was a lot made of that. But I think that's why uh, you mentioned people in Baltimore loved Ken Griffey Jr. I think that was kind of his coming out there. Uh, I, I was the, uh, they, they had asked me that day, the home run derby. It wasn't a big, uh, you know, they, they televised it. They were just starting to televise it on ESPN. But it was the workout day. It was just part of the workout. And it was in the, in the daytime that that, that, that happened. It, they didn't put it in prime time. And uh, so I was on the field sort of emceeing the thing for the people in the stadium. And, uh, and so I, I 
could not see where it hit. I knew it was a long one though. And, uh, and then we got word back that it had, it hit the warehouse. It had cleared Utah street and hit the warehouse, which, uh, as far as I know, he's the only one who, still who's ever done it. And, uh, and I believe Juan Gonzalez may have been the first guy I ever see who hit the upper deck at left field. You know, it's three decks in left field. Right. And it, it was not like the kingdom with the, those upper decks were out close to that right field wall, which was pretty close anyway. Uh, those upper decks are, are upper and they're way back there. So, I mean, he might've hit it. It would have been a 500 foot ball. It was, and I was standing just to the right of him uh, with my little microphone and, uh, and watched it leave his bat. And that was kind of an unforgettable spot, a vantage point to see a guy hit the ball that well. It was, it was, it kind of took your breath away. So, and that's kind of what is fun about the home run derby. And I also remember Barry Bonds, who was still in Pittsburgh. And uh, in fact, that might have been Barry Bonds' first year with the Giants. Now that I think of it, 93, when they had the, it was the second year of Camden Yards, so 93. And Barry was in the home run derby. And he didn't do all that well. Mike Piazza was in it. He didn't do all that well. And, you know, they, they kind of laughed about it and, and whatnot. But for Barry, it was embarrassing. And he never went in a home run derby again. That was it. So he said, you know, the hell with this. I'm not doing that again. So uh, he, uh, he was saving him, I guess, for the, for the real deal. But uh, even when it was at Oracle Park or at, in that time, uh, it was still called Pacific Bell Park, maybe the uh, seventh or eighth season in baseball in the new ballpark here in San Francisco, the All-Star game was here. And Barry did not participate in the Home Run Derby that time either. And I think it was still in his head. Like, it's, it's too embarrassing. If, if, it, if it doesn't happen, then, then I don't want to be involved in it. I'll tell you what. I feel his pain because I did, I, I did two Home Run Derbies. <clears throat> I got asked my first time. It was in Seattle, Safeco field 2001 you know i'm it's an honor i get asked to be in the home run derby you know i got 24 home runs at the break i'm like oh, this is this is awesome this is what i've lived for so i you know i, I i'm in it and back then the the format was different john you remember the format we didn't hit a thousand home runs and it wasn't rapid fire i think they've got the I think they've got the formula down better now. I think it's a, a better product. I think it's better for the fans. But back then, it was like you had outs. And if you hit three or four, you save face. You put on a good show. So I think that's what I did in my first one. I hit three or four. I was in Seattle, so it was my hometown crowd. Uh, Sammy Sosa tied me. And back then, they didn't waste time with you. didn't have a one-on-one uh, tiebreaker. Whoever had more home runs at the break moved on. So Sammy got booed for moving on in Seattle. And anyway, <laughs> I survived my first home run derby and I had a good time because uh, nowadays I think it's different. I think the kids almost like tr uh, they train for the home run derby. So they have an idea. But for me, it was the first time not having that cage around me. It was just a different feeling. Anyway, I, I, I don't want to get too long in my, my stupid story. But two years later, I get asked to do it again in Chicago. Of course, you know, it's an honor for me to get asked to do the home run derby. I go out there and I'm thinking, all right, I'm really going to put on a show this time. I hit zero home runs. It was humiliating. I know exactly what Barry's thinking, because as a player, as a participant, it is just an exhibition. It's not a big deal, right? In hindsight. 
But once you're the player and you stink at when you go to the plate, I'm telling you, it's a different feeling. I I can't explain it to people because as a competitor, I look at somebody that didn't hit any home runs and I just say, yeah, no big deal. Who cares? You know, this is an exhibition. You got the second half of the season. That's what's important. But I'll tell you, there was something inside me like, because right after you finish at the home run derby, you've got it. Somebody's got a mic for you. You got to go get interviewed about how you did. And I remember whoever I went to, it's kind of uncomfortable because you hit zero. So I don't know what to say. And I'm kind of like, I just kind of want to leave. I'm like, just, just get me off this field. I hate it. This is embarrassing. And I'll tell you, I heard about it the entire second half everywhere I went uh, about how bad of a home run derby I, I, I had. You hear it from teammates, which is okay. That's they have the right to to get on you a little bit, but uh, I, I understand uh, Barry's thought process because the logic is it's just a home run derby. Who cares? They want to see Barry Bonds hitting a home run derby. But I'm telling you, a guy that's gone through it <laughs> and didn't have a good result, I I know exactly where he's coming from. Yeah, and that I mean that same day uh, they had the, the like a celebrity home run derby at Camden Yards way back when. And uh, Michael Jordan was there. And this was before he had retired from basketball and decided to try to play professional baseball. And um, Patrick Ewing and, uh, you know, some of the some of the other athletes from different sports. And um, the uh, and I'm trying to remember the the football players, a really good friend with Michael Jordan and uh, and how his name escapes me now. I. He, he married a television star, uh, used to be on the Cosby show, Felicia. Oh, Ahmad Rashad. That's Oh, it. okay. Yep. Felicia Rashad. And uh, uh, anyway, so, and they had some uh, points on the field with markers. And if you hit a ball, because they thought some of these guys might not hit home runs, or maybe none of them will hit a home run. So we better have some different rules. So if you hit it this far, you got a few points. You hit it that far, you got more points, things like that. And uh, and so Jordan came up, and it wasn't pretty. You know, the greatest athlete of the time, or the greatest basketball player of all time, superstar. And and he looked helpless with a bat in his hands. I always thought of that later on when he decided to try to play professional baseball. It was, it was sort of a – it was kind of sweet, really, because it, 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 his dad loved baseball, and they used to play ball as – when Jordan was a kid and his dad had, had, had died. And uh, almost as a tribute to his dad, he thought if my dad could have worked it the way he wanted it, I would have been a major league baseball player, not an NBA player. And so now he went and he tried and he, and he went to double A and I gave him a lot of credit. He went, what was he? 31 years old already. And he had not been playing baseball all that time. So the, the odds were stacked against him and, when he went to play, all I could see in my mind was him and that little celebrity home run derby at Camden Yards because, man, it was – he could not swing the bat. And I remember he hit a little pop fly finally, and it didn't quite reach the first little uh, uh, number out there. So, And I said, close enough, five points for Michael Jordan. And the crowd cheered, you know. So, And I'm just trying to have fun with it as the, the, uh, you know, the host on the field. And Ahmad Rashad came over to me, sort of on the sly, and he says, hey, uh, you know, we all have a bet about who's going to win this thing. So you give him credit for things like that. It could cost the rest of his money, and he's not, he doesn't deserve it, you know. 
<laughs> now so, it's getting serious. There's money on it. You guys bet on this celebrity home run derby? <laughs> it's Michael. Of course he did. <laughs> so uh, later on, 1994, uh, there was a strike. Uh, you know, it, it was the bad old days and the, the owners versus players and, and the war that had been going on for such a long, long time. And, and you know, I don't even want to talk about it. I but was in that war room. You were, and and uh, and it, it was bloody. It was it was not pleasant, and it hurt the game a lot. But that was the year that Michael Jordan played Double A baseball for Birmingham. I guess it was right. the Birmingham yeah. Barons, maybe. And yep. uh, his manager was uh, Terry Francona. Tito Francona, yeah, Terry Francona was his manager. So now the strike is going on, and we have a Sunday, and there's no Sunday night baseball game to do. We go down to Memphis. Birmingham was playing. They had the Memphis team that was in double-A at that time. It was Tim McCarver Stadium, the old ballpark yeah. in Memphis. And ESPN decided, we should go do that game. You and Joe will do that game, and we'll see Michael Jordan play. And we're like, oh, cool. That's a great idea. So we go down there, and wouldn't you know it, the night before, Jordan – he was playing left field. He makes a diving catch attempt, jams his thumb, can't play because he can't really grip the bat properly. <laughs> so we're, we're, wait a minute. We came down here just to see Michael Jordan play. Right. And the reason we're here, no longer, he can't play. So uh, he did do a, a, a long interview with us. So we got a lot of sound bites that we could play during the game with Michael Jordan. And we had a lot of big league players Jeff Bagwell, I remember, was one of the big stars who came on, and, and several others, via satellite. It came on during that game uh, anyway. But the, the reason I'm telling the story was I talked to Terry Francona ahead of time. I said, you know, I'm looking at Jordan's numbers, and this is August already. It's late in that double-A season because they were uh, around Labor Day. The season was going to be over. And we're just uh, like, uh, I don't know, three weeks away from that or, or whatever. I said, he's hitting 205. And he's only got five home runs or four home runs, whatever it was. And you're hitting him eighth or ninth every night. But he's got 53 RBIs. How is that? And he said, well, you know, it sounds crazy because he's got no experience. And yet you put a runner at second or third or base, whatever. If there are RBIs out there, he elevates. He has that ability to elevate his game. He gets better, and he knocks those guys in. So that kind of gave me goosebumps to hear that story for a guy who is new to the game, and it looked like he had everything stacked against him, and yet you put the game on the line and you needed to get those guys home, he was going to find a way to, to get that done, Michael Jordan. And I think the, uh, the, the cool thing about Jordan as a ball player, uh, after the strike was over, when Sosa and McGuire were hitting all those home runs. So what's that? 98. Uh, at the end of the season, near the end of the season, uh, we do a game at, at Wrigley Field in Chicago uh, to see Sammy Sosa. And I think the NFL season had started, so we, we weren't going to have a Sunday night game. So we did a Sunday afternoon game at Wrigley to see, if, yeah, to see Sammy Sosa, check in with him. And Michael Jordan came on with us. There was a rain delay late in that game. And Michael Jordan was at the park. So he came on with me and Joe, which was, you know, was so nice of him and so appreciated. And 
the question I had from us is, what's the main thing you know about the game now, having played a full season of professional baseball, that you didn't know as just a fan of the game or as somebody who followed the game? And immediately, he didn't even think about it. He says, hitters count. And uh, hitters count. And he says, yeah, when the, you know, it's, it's 2-0 and or 3-1 and and what whatnot. And how you can just now sit in a pitch. That had never occurred to him until he actually played the game. And uh, so that was a, sort of an unexpected uh, comment. Because I think you anticipate anybody who's ever played professional baseball, that they've known that forever about you know, those kind of account and how you want to get to that count and so on and so forth and hitters count. And, uh, and Joe was like, uh, shaking his head, like what? That's, <laughs> that's right. it. That's the main thing you learned. So, so Joe had known that since he was 12, I think. But, uh, anyway, so, uh, for me, that was always one of the great things to see Jordan attempt that I gave him so much credit for that because I thought he was doomed. It, it could not happen. And yet he, in that way, his numbers were not good. He had success. And uh, the other part of it was that he even tried it. At the height of his powers as the greatest basketball player on the planet, and maybe the greatest basketball player there ever was. And uh, so I gave him so much credit for that. And because he was Michael Jordan, it put a spotlight on how hard it is what you guys do. Hitting a baseball uh, that gets thrown so hard and has so much movement and they change speeds on you, you have so little time to read and react. Uh, that put a spotlight on how that is probably the single most difficult thing to do in all of professional sports. And, and, and I think that underscored it. Even Michael Jordan, as great as he was, as great an athlete as he was, did not exceed at a high level any kind of expectations. It was just too hard. And, uh, you know, and it's not that it's easy what, what he was doing on an NBA court, but, you know, baseball, you get, what, four at-bats? Sometimes you get five. Uh, one time you, 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 the pitch looks good, you start to swing, and then you say, no, no, and you check your swing, and then the ball glances off the bat and bounces back to the pit, and you lose that at-bat. Uh, so sometimes they never throw you a strike or, uh, you know, it's, it, 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 that's the only shot you get. But now in the NBA, Michael Jordan, they can just keep getting the ball to him, right? He might take 25 or 30 shots in a game. Uh, the quarterback, he's going to take every snap. He might throw 40 passes or 45 passes, handing it off, you know, take, running the ball. Uh, you only get those four or five opportunities every day. And that's it uh, for your game. And, uh, so I think I always was looking to somehow underscore how difficult a task that was. One night we, uh, we tried to time, we picked up the moment the ball left the fingertips of the pitcher to the moment that the batter made his first move to start a swing. It was about one fifth of a second, 0.22 seconds was the average. And the pitcher that, that was throwing was maybe throwing 93 mile an hour fastballs. Uh, and that's the amount of time that you had, those hitters had, to not just get off a swing, but to read the pitch, all the things that you guys can do. Is that is it a fastball? Is it in my zone? Is it in the strike zone at all? 
Is it a breaking ball? One fifth of a second to put all that information together and decide, okay, yes, I'm going to swing. Not, not a couple of minutes. <laughs> Let me get my slide rolled out here. Let me get my calculator. Let me see if this is the one I should be going after. One fifth. So the next day, I, you know, that we tried this, it was in Minnesota. I get back with the Giants and JT Snow comes up to me and says, you know, I was watching that game last night. You guys had this timing and like 0.22, less than a quarter of a second to get the swing off and read all that stuff. And I started thinking to myself, how do I do that? It's pretty remarkable. And I, I said, well, how do you? <laughs> he says, well, I have no answer. I couldn't figure it out. The only thing I could say is I've been doing it my whole life. All of us big league hitters have been doing that kind of thing our whole lives. And it's just, you read and react. And somehow, because we've always done that, we're able to do it. But for me, that's a superhuman caliber kind of a thing to do. And, you know, in the, in the Olympics, they, they put a camera on a, on a you know, a, a slalom skier and he's going down the, the mountain at, you know, incredible speeds. And, and then when you see him from his point of view with that camera on his head, you see how spectacular it is, how superhuman it is. And I was always looking for a way to show how superhuman being able to hit a baseball is at a high level and have a really good season because I think it's underappreciated. You see that center field camera and it makes it look easy. It's all compressed. The guy swings at one, it's, you know, it's, it's up here. And you're thinking, oh, what's the, what's the matter with him? He's swinging at a bad ball like that, a uh, high one. And, uh, and the real question is, how is it that they don't just swing at every pitch that gets thrown? Because it gets thrown so hard and you have to do it so fast. So uh, anyway, so I was, I was kind of proud of our efforts that night to try to underscore how difficult it is and really superhuman it is. But for me, Michael Jordan underscored that better than, than anything we showed ever could. Jordan? Unbelievable. I'll touch on that real quick. I always tell that story, John. You're the first person I've heard that said what was impressive was the 52 ribbies. Okay, because I, I remember as a player watching Michael going, okay, first of all, there's no chance he's going to be a big leaguer with that swig. Now, secondarily, what are what are his numbers? I looked at his numbers at the end of the year. It's not like he went to some rinky-dink league. He was in the Southern League. That's a respectable league, double A. He did drive in over 50 runs. And you think about it, there's a lot of guys that do this for a living that signed professional contracts that were high in the draft that never drove in 52 runs in a minor league season. Yet Michael just steps from the court to double A and drives in 52. That's off the charts impressive for me. Now, he's probably one of the worst hitters in the league. <laughs> but the fact is, how would I be if you put me in a Bulls uniform? How many how many points am I going to score tonight? So so it's all relative. And I always thought, I think that's a great point. You brought up the runs he drove in. Yeah. Hitting and as a whole. He wasn't hitting cleanup where all no. the on-base guys are on base all the time. And, you know, if you make contact at all, you might drive in a run by accident. He's hitting eighth and ninth. Yeah. And uh, I don't even know how many it's guys impressive. he had on base a lot It's impressive. It's 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 more impressive than people give it credit for. Put it that way. Indeed. 2400 Sports is an Odyssey company.